the concept of yes and is a much more nuanced thing than what meets the ear. Really what we're talking about is approaching the scene with equal parts acceptance and vulnerability and like courage to add your thing on top of it. So that yes piece isn't just like, yes, even though I hate what's being built in the scene, even though I'm feeling like almost victimized in this scene, like women improvisers have a long history of being forced into roles in a scene that did not feel good to them. And so there is some really gorgeous content out there from people who have both trained improvisers and people who were performers themselves of what it's like to understand that yes and means I'm not ignoring what happened. I'm taking some agency in this and realizing I get to build what does honor me. Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of the None of Your Business podcast. And today's podcast is going to be super valuable for everybody. It doesn't even matter if you have a business or not. Today's podcast is going to tackle issues and themes that I think a lot of people really sort of struggle with. I don't know if it's struggle, but they they're not they're not comfortable, comfortable with like yeah they're uncomfortable with their yeah so maybe you've had a situation at work but also what's cool is maybe it's not at work maybe it's just in your home life or anywhere in life maybe it's your neighbor and you had there's something that you don't really like you're non-confrontational yeah but there's something that happened when you're not <laughs> you're not you're no longer cool and you're non-confrontational but you kind of want to be confrontational. You know that there's things that you may want to talk about, but you're not really sure how to get into the conversation. You know, we've done a little bit of work here on the podcast on difficult conversations, like how to enter into difficult conversations. And sometimes it's because, you know, maybe as a coworker, you're not holding your weight or maybe even I feel like you did me wrong many, many, many years ago. Or maybe even we, as we've talked about on past episodes, maybe you feel like you did someone else wrong and you want to have that conversation. But today we're talking specifically about when things happen and it kind of breaks a relationship. And it doesn't matter what the level of relationship is. Nobody feels good when a relationship feels like it might have been cracked in some way, shape or form. So we reached out to Aunt Andrea. Flack Weatherald, let's bring her on. Oh, Andrea, I have so many Andreas and Andreas in my life. I just have <laughs> mm -hmm. a hard time keeping them straight. And it's not by like ethnicities, it's just Andrea, Andrea. Uh -huh. Trying to figure that all of that out is it gets twisted in my head. So I'm <laughs> apologizing in advance. Welcome to the None of Your Business podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to spending this time with you guys. Well, you have a very interesting journey and we always begin every single podcast with the same question, but your, this, your answer to this, I know is going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, the question is, how do we end up here talking to you? What makes you an expert at helping to 
put together relationships in in the unique way that you do in yeah. entering into difficult conversations how do we end up here with you as an expert on this topic you mean you don't have social workers turned comedians on here like every week i mean Almost that, every other week every other week less, I mean, yeah. it's, it's the social worker part that yeah, you throws us off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so my professional background in my degree is in social work and i um had known for a long time that I wanted to go into that field. As a young child, I survived sexual trauma and sexual assault. And it was social workers who really stood in the gap for me and helped me heal and helped me process that hurt and figure out how to move forward with building a life that honored me. And that wasn't just about, you know, this awful thing that happened. And so I knew I wanted to do work like that, that could help people restore a sense of hope and restore a sense of dignity in their lives. And so I got a social work degree and uh, started out my first job out of college was on a behavior modification research study that was looking specifically at addiction and smoking cessation, but trying to figure out how do you come alongside someone who's trying to make a big change in their lives in a way that's not patronizing um, and not condemning. And, you know, a lot of the times when there's a really important change that needs to happen, a doctor comes in and is like, look, if you don't make a change, you're going to die, you know, or a judge comes in and says, if you don't make a change, you're going to go to jail or you're going to lose your children or something like this. And there's this heavy handed ultimatum happening. So the purpose of the research study was to figure out how can we come alongside people who are trying to make a change in a way that really supports their own dignity as a person, in a way that really is actually efficacious in helping them, first of all, make a change, attempt, and second of all, increase the length of time that they are in the maintenance stage of change. And so we used a lot of mindful, or I'm sorry, mindful improv thinking is what I have built since then. We used motivational interviewing is the word I'm looking for, which I did not create. Um, some really awesome social scientists by the names of Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick developed this methodology for encouraging change by asking good questions. So I absolutely loved this work. And in a series of events um, after the study it was a time limited research study in a series of events that kind of shocked most people in my life, not least of all my parents. I found my way into producing and performing comedy. <laughs> I realized there's not an immediate bridge. It doesn't seem obvious why that would be a logical next career step. Um, and I'm happy to discuss this more over margaritas sometime. But um, basically, I found my way into comedy. And what was so delightful to me is that improv wasn't just fun. It was like, really, really powerful. Like what's happening on an improv stage is rolling with change, accepting that you don't have control, choosing to have each other's backs and support each other's ideas, even after those same people failed in front of you, or even after you failed in front of them. Like over and over, it's like immersion therapy in the skills that help you do life better. And so I got to thinking after years of just like loving improv so much, and I just kind of like threw myself all the way into the deep end and just loved it so much. But I never would shut up about how meaningful it was to me. And so people started asking me to come talk at their thing. And I was like, I mean, I don't know if that's a good plan. Like I need to have slides and like 
deodorant on. I mean, that's <laughs> like a big ask. <laughs> so, um, but I'm so glad that I did because my very first talk that I gave was to social workers. It was like full circle. There's a group of uh, social workers helping folks um, who are refugees get resettled into the United States. Um, and in particular, these social workers were helping refugees who then were escaping domestic violence that they were experiencing once they already had relocated here. So um, at any rate, that was my first talk. And I just, it was this like life-defining moment of realizing like, oh my gosh, this is so powerful. And these skills that make improv work on stage can help us be successful off stage when we're doing really vulnerable, really difficult things, because all of life is improv. That's kind of like the most important takeaway that I hope all of your listeners can find a way to really tap into, because it's just true. Like it is improv. And when you remember that it's improv, you can kind of find a sense of hope about whatever is going to happen in the future. Like, okay, it's not written in stone. I don't need to be so afraid of it. You know, like it's improv. We're going to build to whatever is about to happen. Um, but to land the plane here, since I've been talking for about 90 minutes, um, <laughs> the answer to your question, how am I an expert? I mean, look, I'm a fellow person in the trenches right alongside anybody else. But I have noticed in the years of teaching this and bringing these components of what I learned as a social worker and components of what I've learned as a comedian together, that my batting average for finding more joy in life and connecting more deeply with the people around me increases dramatically when I remember it's improv and then think about the same skills that I'm using in my life as an improviser and employ them off stage. So that's been just my passion is sharing this with people because improv is just really freaking fun, first of all. And so it's like a low stakes, delightful way to practice skills that can restore marriages and make offices work so much better together and help passionate people find more joy and be more effective in their work. It's so funny because like when I think of the word improv and improvising, it's it's this idea that you have to be extremely adaptable to your external environment, right? Mm -hmm. And I I notice like when I'm listening to you talk, yes, I mean like you have to improvise in life all the time. In fact, for us, some of the common traits that we see in very successful individuals is their ability to adapt and improvise in a moment, in a second. Um, mm -hmm. So where do you, like when you're helping people, where do you see they get most stuck? That inflexibility, that inability to adapt, that inability to improvise, like what do you see often and how do you help them break through that? Because I imagine that has to come first. That's such a great question. No one has ever asked me that before. And oh. I love that. <laughs> I think the immediate thing that comes to mind for me is people get stuck in a rut of feeling justified in their resentments. Like when they feel like I have collected evidence, literally proving that you are a turd bucket and I should not have to find a way to mend this fence with you. I can prove to anyone who cares to listen that right. I'm right and you're wrong and that should be the end of it. And so when we collect this evidence and we've kind of decided my resentment, my hatred, my fear, my conviction that there is one way this thing can play out is correct. 
when that's where we're standing, we convince ourselves, well, there's not a lot of hope, you know? So the way that I encourage and invite people to work through that is by asking themselves the question, well, is it working for me to set the bar at what I'm allowed to do? Because it's improv. There's no rules. You're right. You are allowed to decide that you're not going to mend this fence. You are allowed to decide that you're right and they're wrong and you don't have to forgive them. You don't have to do it. That's completely, totally an option. But then the question is, what do you really want? Because if what you want is to build something really beautiful in your life, you don't always get to choose your scene partners. And so you're going to have to find a way to work with the scene partners that you have because everything that exists was built by imperfect people. And, and if you keep waiting for better people that you think, you know, are at your caliber or whatever, you're Mike, you might gonna wait a long time. You might yeah. wait so long that you miss your opportunity to do something that you care about with your life. So the question isn't like, am I justified in this resentment? The question is like, is that resentment serving your purposes? And if it's not, then you're going to have to decide, yes, and yes, this person was unprofessional. Yep, I am correct that that was sexism that I saw or racism that I saw. And can I believe anywhere in my head that this person is more than the worst thing about them? That's one of the things I often encourage people to ask themselves. Like, can you believe that your scene partner is more than the worst thing about them. There's no erasure. There's no asking us to just ignore and pretend like things don't happen. And there's no ask to not hold someone accountable. I really believe that we can hold optimism and accountability and compassion and empathy together. I think we can hold all of these things together at the same time. Well, you brought up this idea. You said that you love improv. I find this fascinating because if we were to just poll the viewers and listeners, most people would not be jumping up and down and saying and volunteering to go up on the stage, even if there wasn't an audience, right? just to do improv. Like who wants to run up there with, with, with these five people and just do some improv? Now you're saying, right? yeah, you're saying yeah. like, oh, it's great. And, and the reason why you said that I found that fascinating was because it was a low stakes right? it had low mm -hmm. stakes which is interesting because most people would see that as high stakes i even think like comedy over the margaritas when we get that chance that's even higher stakes mm -hmm. but it's so there's low stakes improv there's higher stakes comedy but people nobody would be saying i want to give it a shot at going unless you knew you had talent but i would be afraid that people people would not laugh people would laugh at me because i was not funny versus laughing sure. at me because my material was good. But all of that to say, <laughs> you're saying that life is all of life is improv. But what I'm understanding here, though, or what I'm kind of feeling, and I love to sort of speak for the audience, if you will, is that the, the, the difficulty here is that even in the examples that you were given, is that life has much higher stakes. So while yes, it is improv, while I'm talking with my friends or my coworkers, or even with my significant other, I can't just yes and my way through this and because there's stakes, the other person might be mad. I might get fired. I might be ostracized. I might not be invited back for, for a second date or I might be kicked out of family Thanksgiving dinner. How do we reconcile that? Because 
yes, that is true. It it all is improv, but we get scared over the stakes when, mm. when we think about that. Absolutely. Okay. Lots to unpack there. Mm -hmm. So firstly, I know what you mean about the idea of improv not feeling low stakes. So the way that I think it's just important to point out that performance does not feel like low stakes. Performance is like a lot of people's like nightmare and they wake up with like lots of boob sweat and like, it's not great, you know? So I get that. Um, but improv doesn't have to have a performance component. In fact, um, I don't always do improv workshops anymore. Um, most of what I do these days is uh, speak at events and that sort of thing. And if there's time, we can do like a workshop or that sort of thing, like a breakout session. But when you completely remove the performance component and just allow things to be like group activities, then it does reduce the feeling of like, everybody's watching me and expecting me to be funny, which truly I understand why that feels like a living nightmare. I used to be so nervous before I would perform on show days that I couldn't eat the whole day. <laughs> and I've destroyed more than one comedy theater bathroom out of nervousness. So just some <laughs> empathy on my part. I get that it's scary. <laughs> We're just getting to know each other like real well. Um, and to your point about life has high stakes. And so it feels like you can't yes and your way through it. Um, I wanted to touch on that because I think what I'm hearing from you is a level of um, resistance around this idea of yes and that makes a ton of sense. Because when you hear those words, they sound almost trivial. Like in real life, we can't say yes to everything mm -hmm. and we shouldn't, you know? Um, the concept of yes and is a much more nuanced thing than what meets the ear. Really what we're talking about is approaching the scene with equal parts acceptance and vulnerability and like courage to add your thing on top of it. So that yes piece isn't just like, yes, even though I hate what's being built in the scene, even though I'm feeling like almost victimized in this scene, like women improvisers have a long history of being forced into roles in a scene that did not feel good to them. And so there is some really gorgeous content out there from people who have both trained improvisers and people who were performers themselves of what it's like to understand that yes and means I'm not ignoring what happened. I'm taking some agency in this and realizing I get to build what does honor me. I get to build what does serve me. I just can't do that if I'm knocking you down and being like, no, get out of here and being super accusatory. A really beautiful example of this is in Sharna Halpern's book, Art by Committee. And she gives this example of a woman um, being on stage and then a male scene partner walks on and says, honey, I brought a friend home from work. So I need you to cook us up another plate or something to this effect. I'm not doing an exact quote here. And then she turns around and says, well, that's fine, dear, but I told you to call me Madam President when we're not alone. And so she like acknowledges, yes, the information that you gave me, I am working with. Yes, you decided that we are married. You decided that I'm cooking dinner. But what I'm deciding is that I am not your little 1950s leave it to beaver wifey that does everything for you and is commanded by you to whatever. Yes, and, you know, and so what happens so often in life 
is we catastrophize. I heard a little bit of this in some of the examples that you may have been sort of exaggerating for fun, which I am a huge fan of. Um, but, you know, we get to telling ourselves, if I say this, I'll get fired. If I say this, I'll be excommunicated. And what I have experienced in my life is like, if you come in kicking doors down and flipping folks off, that might happen. But if you can find a way to honor your scene partner and say, I am approaching this with vulnerability, you know, you can earn a lot of respect for yourself from your boss or from your grandma or from your aunt Becky, who has all kind of opinions and conspiracy theories that she's peddling willy nilly at the table. And so, you know, there's there are ways to do it. But we tell ourselves that there's this dichotomy. There's do the emotional gymnastics to ignore, 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 or smash it with a hammer, you know, mm. like come in and like drop the hammer and like, grandma, you're a racist. I don't want to be here anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, that might not serve your purposes, you know, in the long run. But I do think that there is this way, and I, it's not just that I think, I have literally dedicated my life to exploring how do we have these vulnerable conversations in a way that says, I can honor what I believe in and my convictions, and I can honor my scene partner. I can battle ignorance without battling people, if that makes sense. This is really an interesting concept. And again, listening to you talk, it just makes me think, I, I completely understand the idea of yes and the front side of acceptance, the second side of vulnerability. But the one thing that we're not talking about is the other side of that conversation, the scene mm-hmm. partner themselves, right? Yeah. And so there's one thing of overcoming this, this fear, this fear of judgment, this, these high stakes, putting yourself out there saying yes and I'm going to do what honors me. But then what happens if on the other side, I'm trying to mend this relationship, I'm trying to accept, I'm trying to overcome, and I'm met with a scene partner that doesn't give back or doesn't accept mm. on their end. They don't yes They and. don't yes they and don't me yes back. And. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's There like, is a chance that that kind of thing could happen because as absolutely. far as I can tell, not every person has had the benefit of my gorgeous, vulnerable conversations training. Yes. So since I haven't reached 100% market saturation yet, um, I think there is a chance that either you or your listeners may run into such a situation. And I know I certainly have as well. Um, So, I mean, there are several things that can happen. First of all, uh, there's lots of relationships we could be talking about. You know, I'm thinking of different examples when this has happened to me. Um, when you create content on the internet, people feel fine to just say like literally whatever to you because <laughs> you're like no longer a person to them. And, you know, so for a while I used to take the approach of trying to reach out and like have these vulnerable conversations about like, Hey, like, I don't know if you've thought about this perspective and whatever. And then they would just like slam down with something like even more ignorant and hurtful. And you're like, that did not do what I wanted it to do at all. Um, And so what I encourage people to do in situations where you don't have a real life relationship with someone is really ask yourself, like, what do I, what is the emotional work for me to do this right now? And is this what I want to do? I really encourage people to think about brave and vulnerable conversations as an opportunity, not an obligation. Because 
you're not the only scene partner in that person's life. And what if, if this person is shutting you down, that doesn't mean I've encountered a monster. It means I'm not the scene partner who can connect with this person in that way. And there's a difference between planting a seed and having a garden. And so I always encourage people, if they've decided in their hearts, I want to have this vulnerable conversation with this person and they approach it with mindful improv thinking and they, you know, come to this person and they share the thing that's on their heart that they need to share. And they're met with like, no, I can't do this. You know, um, first of all, feel free to set whatever boundaries you need to set after that. Um, Second of all, understand that you don't plant a seed and then start screaming at it and be like, why aren't you corn yet? You know, like we understand there's a germination process and we understand that there's a lot happening below the surface that we don't get to see. That doesn't mean that that work isn't happening. And as someone who myself has been the recipient of that kind of feedback of people coming to me and being like, hey. I don't know if you realize this worldview that you're holding is hurtful. Like I come from a not super woke background and I have had like a learning curve of, and I know that word woke, I should stop saying that. It means <sighs> I feel like things that make people feel some kind of way now. But what I mean is I've had some learning to do in my life to make sure that my behavior and my words match the love that is in my heart. So if I had a do-over on answering this question, what I would say is, I've been that person, <laughs> the other person in that half of the feedback loop. And I know what it feels like to be like shocked. Like, what? You think that I'm a racist? Like, you think that I'm a bigot? Like, what? No, I'm not. And like throw up all kind of resistance and block you on Facebook and be like, I will not. And like, the reality is that I'm so thankful, even if sometimes the way that that feedback was presented to me was not super workable in that moment and was mildly to moderately off-putting. I'm thankful that that feedback happened for me because that person never got to see the work I was doing when it was just me and like the universe at night. And I'm checking in and being like, am I doing this thing right? Like, am I a good person? Am I doing the best I can be doing? But just because they didn't get to see it, that didn't mean that work wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that that feedback did motivate me to ask some hard questions. So there's a lot that's happening in this. And there could be like infinity types of situations running through your mind and other people's minds. But what I just encourage people is, A, opportunity, not obligation. This is improv. You're not the only scene partner. It doesn't all fall on you. If you feel like you don't want to confront someone, because they're throwing up all kinds of signals that make you think this is not going to be productive. Don't do it. Trust the ensemble. That's a major part of mindful improv thinking. Trust the ensemble. There's more than just you. You know, you have hundreds, thousands, millions of scene partners in this world hmm. pouring their heart every day into how can we protect the environment? How can we make the world a loving, brave place? And you might not, you, you don't know. You don't know all their names, but their work matters and their progress matters. And they have your back, even if you don't know that they do. They do. They have your back and they're on I, your team. I feel like too, so really like as the deliverer of this, somebody that's going to go into this to a scene partner, whoever they may be, it's really a yes and and. So it's like, yes, 
I'm accepting, and here's the vulnerable component, and I'm okay with the outcome, right? No matter yeah. what that is. And so I think that that's mm -hmm. really important, like listening to you. It's, I'm okay with the outcome. I can't have expectation of it because I don't know what's going to happen on the other side. So. Yeah. Well, I, had, I had somebody pull this line on me. I'm going to use it now. So this is fascinating. You should write a book. <laughs> How about that? You have written I a book. I did write a book. Tell us and about I, the book. <laughs> I am honored, honored, honored to have had Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway wrote the foreword for my book. Nice. And my goal for writing it, oh, I should, I'm just the worst marketer and salesperson in America. It's on the Amazon. Called. It's called The Funny Thing About Forgiveness. Yeah. You. <laughs> Thank you for having my back. I appreciate <laughs> you right now. <laughs> um, yeah. And my goal was to share these ideas about um, mindful improv thinking for forgiveness, what I call the world's least favorite F word. And to really provide a framework, and I and I try to make it in the book actionable and practical and helpful without being a script, because the reality is you guys are gorgeous, amazing improvisers already. You've literally been improvising your entire life. The last thing you need me or anyone else to do is be like, here's the script for when you have to give difficult feedback. Like right. you cannot bring a script to an improv party. As soon as your scene partner says something surprising, that script is not useful anymore. And so, mm -hmm. um, so in the book, I try to provide this framework for how we can tee up these vulnerable conversations to kind of lay the groundwork for success um, and just give some examples of in both in my life and in people that have shared their journeys with me as I've been teaching these ideas for a long time, people will often email me or message me on LinkedIn and tell me about their brave conversation and how it went using these ideas. So I try to give these examples in the book um, so people can identify some best practices or some you know creative maneuvers that they think would work well for them. Um, because I do not think we can, um, I shouldn't say we can't have one without the other, because what I teach in the book is that forgiveness is the prerequisite for confrontation, not the other way around. We so often treat confrontation like, well, I'll be brave and I'll muster my courage and then I'll walk in there and we'll see if they earned my forgiveness or not. But the reality is forgiveness is the most important leadership skill. It's the most important life skill. Forgiveness is what creates freedom and your ability to like be tapped in in the moment and find joy in your life. And so that's like really a lot of power to give someone else, you know, their lack of deservingness of your forgiveness has nothing to do with whether or not they should be holding the keys to your emotional freedom. So I teach in this book, you come in with forgiveness first. And that's like to your point um, about release like not being tied down to the outcome, like whatever happens after this conversation, like I'm okay. That's critical pre-confrontation groundwork for yourself. Um, but then you have this brave conversation and you no longer feel the need to choke the life out of it because you like need it to do something. You're open to whatever you're gonna build together, you know? And if this person is resistant and if they're mean, 
and they're disrespectful, you have more information. Some In certain contexts, that can be really helpful because if you're trying to figure out, does this person have a future at my company or not? And you confront them with these mindful improv thinking ideas and that's what they show up for you. That's how they show up for you. Well, that's quite a lot of clarity then. Well, I think that, and, and I'll wrap up with this question because I think this kind of somewhat brings it full circle because the idea of improv is that we're unattached to the, the result. Like I'm going to mm-hmm. offer up my position or my offering, and then you're going to receive that. And I don't really have any control because like you said, there's no script. It goes where it goes. Right. There's a balance here though, because you're saying like, okay, so if I offer up my position and you were rude or you were mean, I need to then set boundaries. So I am somewhat attached. I'm not just completely like, well, mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want and I'm just going to be fine with it. There, there's, there's this fine line between like, well, there is an outcome. Like I, even if I'm just saying the outcome is you were going to be loving and respectful and how you received my offering, my, my, how, what I said, or maybe I thought that, well, the boundary was that you were going to receive it and, um, in work, um, it, except that you needed to come to work on time or whatever the thing is, what, how do we delineate? Because on one end we want to be just completely detached from the uh, unattached from the outcome. But on the other end, we do realize that we have to do what's best for ourselves or the organization where you're talking about leadership. How do we figure out where that line is? So there's like a micro lens and a macro lens, you know, like the outcome of this conversation, I about made a weird word that was mixed between conversation and confrontation. But that conversation is short term, you know, and so there can be a degree of detachment in, you know, what happens if you have to fire this person, that's painful and it sucks. And I have never met anyone who's glad when they have to do that, you know, but it's also like your vision for your company, your vision for the future is not tied up in any one thing. Like how I think about detachment is that there's a lot of faith in understanding that whatever is out there in the future is good. Whatever out there in the future, you know, whatever we're building towards, like I have faith that because we are sharing a vision of whatever it is for your company or your organization, I have this like macro level faith that any, that there's so many ways that it can turn out good, (laughs) that there's so many avenues to that, you know, beautiful vision for the future. And, you know, in improv, it's not that we have like total detachment. I mean, we have this idea of like, there's a successful show. I mean, we we are employed by the theater. They need us to have successful shows. They need people to come back, tell their friends, leave good reviews. It's a business, you know? So there's these like objectives that are important. It's just that we're not attached to... Andrew bringing back his electric possum character at the end of the show, like those micro level specific details. It's like, whatever, either that way or some other way. And so like when people get real hung up on stuff, I'm like in my head thinking, I think you're worried about an electric possum and like, it's fine. Like it either will happen or it won't happen. But like (laughs) macro level, you can trust the ensemble that we're going somewhere good. Right. I love it. You 
obviously you're doing, you mentioned um, talks, workshops, um, engaging with the people. You are a woman of the people and I love I'm that. A woman of the how, people. <laughs> how, how, can people, how can people contact you? How do they reach out to you? How do they connect with you? The best way to connect with me is through the Mindful Improv community. This is free. There's no upsell happening right here. Um, but I love the more intimate setting versus being out there on social media. And you can find me on LinkedIn of the, of the socials. LinkedIn is where I'm the most active. But joining the Mindful Improv community is a great way to do that. And I assume that you have the ability to put like a link in the mm -hmm. show notes or something. Great. I'll send you that link um, to put there. And if you're interested, if people are listening and they're like, I would love to have you speak at an event or something, um, andbeyondimprov.com slash speaking is where you can find all of that info. I love it. You absolutely killed it. Unbelievable. But you're a performer. So, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, it, there's, a, there's that Our same questions thing. Were we could, we could even, too. Like it was well, it was improv, but we could go back and have a way. thing because there's a, there's a line to when you are interviewing someone who's a performer versus someone who's just, they don't even understand that it's improv. They're like, they came with their agenda. And All they the were, world's a stage though. Aren't you always performing? Well, that's why I said she's a, she's a woman of people. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank All right, you everybody. Guys, you guys are great interviewers. I really <laughs> questions. Yeah, we, we, we've been working on it for a while, so. Well, I don't know how we top this one next week, but we'll definitely, definitely give it a shot. Everybody will be back again next week with a brand new episode of the None of Your Business Podcast.